hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we're going to be finishing up a chapter that's been covering a period of attempted reform that has also overlapped with the First World War. Last week we talked about the effects of the war and how things were going, but this week we're going to be talking about things on the home front and how much worse things were going there and how much more crucial that was to causing an impending revolution. So, let's jump in. Politics and the Economy Politics was relatively calm until summer 1915, as the mood of national unity persisted. Government was not slow to realize that it must act to support civilian morale, and entrepreneurs were not slow to spot an opportunity to make a profit. The result was an explosion of patriotic propaganda that seized on traditional and new cultural forms including postcards, posters, magazines, woodcuts, lubki, and cinema newsreels. The focus of patriotic identification was on Russia's military heroes and cultural figures, on her history and imperial geography. Significantly, there was little evidence of popular enthusiasm for the Tsar himself. Footnote 91 Characteristic motifs, were lamp- <clears throat> Characteristic motifs were lampoons of the Kaiser, photographs of modern weaponry, heroic images of battle, and allegorical depictions of Mother Russia, and these were shared across class lines. The Supreme Commander-in-Chief, Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, about whom the public knew little, was presented in the press as someone alien to the artificiality of high society by virtue of his known severity and religious fervor. The press carried photographs of him entering the church at the army's general headquarters. Footnote 92. One of the more repugnant expressions of popular chauvinism came in the form of violent attacks on the persons and property of enemy aliens mainly Germans, and there was a surge in hatred of Jews. The main drivers of this were groups of rightists, now much less organized than in 1906. It was they who led the clamor for Poles and Jews to be deported, but not without support from the press and from across the social spectrum. The historian Eric Lohr suggests that the demand that government and economy be purged of foreign influence was part of a campaign to project the state as a national rather than imperial entity. Footnote 93. The mood of national unity, however, did not endure. By 1916, patriotic propaganda was fast losing its capacity to cement identification with the nation among soldiers at the front and among the urban and rural lower classes who became convinced that they were being made to bear the costs of war. Footnote 94. Many in the elite hoped that the war might revitalize the constitutional settlement promised in the October Manifesto. It was not long, however, before tension between government and Stavka began to mount as the munitions shortage became apparent and as the Galicia campaign began to stall. Even ministers were appalled by the Russification policy imposed by Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich. As the Minister of Agriculture, 
A.V. Krivoshane observed, quote, One cannot fight a war against Germany and against the Jews at the same time. End quote. Krivoshane, one of the Tsar's most able ministers, would soon find himself dismissed for advising Nicola not to take on the position of commander-in-chief. In June 1915, Duma circles, the Duma was not in session at this time, forced the resignation of the Minister of War, V.A. Sukumlinov, who was made to carry the can for the munitions crisis. On the 19th of July, the Duma was allowed to reconvene, but the Tsar ignored its calls for a government enjoying the confidence of the people. This now became the rallying cry of a progressive bloc, which was formed by a Duma majority comprising the cadets, Octoberists, and Progressists. The bloc campaigned for a political and religious amnesty and for the abolition of restrictions on nationalities, religious confessions, and trade unions. These demands provoked an angry Tsar into suspending the Duma on the 3rd of September, in effect creating a constitutional crisis. The Prime Minister, I.L. Goremikin, deliberately scuppered talks between the Progressive Bloc and the Council of Ministers, but his unbending attitude merely soured relations further. In February 1916, he was replaced by B.V. Sturmer, who prevailed upon Nicola to seek greater cooperation from the Duma. But when the Duma was reconvened on the 9th of February, Sturmer disappointed the deputies by harping on the impossibility of pursuing constitutional reform at a time of war. He too did not last long in his post, a casualty of what became known as the game of ministerial leapfrog. From July 1914 to February 1917, there were no fewer than four prime ministers, six ministers of the interior, four ministers each of justice, war, and agriculture, and four procurators of the Holy Synod. This was due to the compulsive interference in government of the German-born Empress Alexandra Fyodorovna whom many of the populace believed to be working for German victory. There seems little doubt that she was under the mesmeric influence of Grigory Rasputin, the peasant holy man, who, she believed, had the mystical power to cure the haemophilia of her son Alexei. He did not scruple to use his influence to interfere in court politics, all of which set off rumours of sexual shenanigans and treason by dark forces at court. Rasputin's significance was more symbolic than real, but for people at all levels of society, not least for high military and political officials, he became an emblem of political corruption, lust, and debauchery. Rumours of dark forces at court were hugely potent, corroding the mythic unity with the people that the Tsar and Tsarina had so desperately desired. By February 1917, the vast population that in 1900 had seen the Tsar as the divinely appointed little father of his people had dwindled to a handful. Meanwhile, civil society seized the opportunity of patriotic war work to expand its political influence. The government welcomed the work of the Red Cross, 
the organizations that offered assistance to the flood of refugees, the women's organizations that engaged in charity work, collected money, and knitted scarves and socks for soldiers at the front. More politically challenging was the formation in June 1915 of a union of Zemstvos and urban municipalities, known as Zemgor, without the Tsar's permission. Its chairman, Prince G. E. Lvov, would become the first head of the provisional government after the February Revolution. Zemgor took on a wide range of war-related tasks, including care for the wounded and the organization of supplies to the army. To this end, it purchased materials and subcontracted orders for equipment, munitions, uniforms, and foodstuff to private firms. Footnote 95. By the winter of 1916, Zemgor was criticizing the government openly, saying that it had become an obstacle to victory. Footnote 96. In the same month as Zemgor was created, a Central War Industries Committee was established on the initiative of a group of Moscow-based industrialists and merchants who were aggrieved that the Ministry of War was funneling orders to the big metalworking and engineering plants of St. Petersburg and southern Russia, to the exclusion of medium and small industry. The Central War Industries Committee was headed by the Octoberist A.I. Guchkov, who had been chairman of the Third Duma. It established a network of branches to distribute war-related orders to local firms. One innovation of the War Industries Committees was its first formation of elected workers' groups. By February 1917, 58 of these had come into existence, by which time there were 240 War Industry Committees. Footnote 97. Boycotted by the anti-war socialists, the political stance of the workers' groups seems to have been popular among workers. They called for the end of autocracy, but saw their main task as being to ensure that workers' interests were properly represented in the war effort. They emphasized the class character of the war and called for a democratic peace, while insisting that the working class must not allow Russia to be defeated. Footnote 98. The struggle of the public organizations to wrest control of military supplies from the hands of official agencies did not lead to any substantial improvement in supply to the armed forces. Footnote 99. The War Industries Committee received no more than 5% of all defense orders, and they were hamstrung for credit and access to raw materials. In January 1917, they were told they would receive no new orders from government because they were too slow in fulfilling the ones they already had. Footnote 100. Nevertheless, the fact that public organizations intervened in this crucial sphere in the middle of a war was a strong sign of how weakened the authority of the Tsar had become. That said, the government was not unsuccessful in mobilizing the economy for total war. By 1916, production for defense accounted for 30% of total production, a rise of 5% over 1913. Footnote 101. Powerful procurement agencies for grain, meat, oil, and fodder had been quickly put in place, and in May 1915, a special defense council was formed with the power to force state-owned and private enterprises to fulfill government orders and, if necessary, 
to remove directors and close private firms. As the War Industries Committee complained, however, this led to a cozy relationship between the War Ministry and big industrial and financial concerns, which made immense profits at government expense. Under pressure from the Duma, the Tsar replaced the Special Defense Council in August 1915 with four special councils for defense, food supply, fuel, and transport. These incorporated representatives of public organizations but kept the reins firmly in the hands of ministers. Footnote 102. Positive results were evident in the fact that by 1917, the output of shells had grown by 2,000%, of artillery by 1,000%, and of rifles by 1,100%. Footnote 103. Yet, the situation was by no means encouraging. There were critical bottlenecks due to shortages of fuel and problems of transportation, and by 1916, supplies of coal, iron, and steel were running out. Footnote 104. More significantly, satisfying the voracious appetite of the war machine was hugely costly. Peter Gattrell estimates that by 1916, the war was costing around 40 million rubles a day in contemporary prices. Footnote 105. This was both a reflection and a cause of soaring inflation, with prices tripling between 1914 and 1916 and wages doubling. The costs of the war were met by internal and foreign loans, by direct and indirect taxation, by prohibiting exchanges in gold, and by pumping out paper money. The money in circulation rose from 1.53 million rubles on the 1st of July 1914 to 17.175 million rubles on the 1st of October 1917. Footnote 106. By 1916, the budget deficit stood at 78%. Footnote 107. After decades of discussion, income tax was finally introduced which meant that no one could any longer claim exemption by virtue of belonging to a privileged estate. Footnote 108. Enemy blockades in the Baltic and Black Sea cut exports by three quarters by 1915, yet imports of military equipment soared. The French provided 1.5 billion rubles in loans and the British 5.4 billion, although the British demanded 2 billion rubles in gold bullion as collateral and insisted that the Russian government buy 1.8 billion rubles in British treasury bonds. The result was that Russia's debt doubled between 1914 and 1917, increasing by a total of 8 million gold rubles. Footnote 109. The efforts to encourage public subscription to war bonds were only partially successful. Peasants preferred to save cash, and workers objected when a contribution to the war loan was automatically docked from their wages. Problems were being stoked up for the future, with the boom in the war economy fueled by inflation. Currency emissions were five to six times the pre-war level, compared with a doubling in France, a tripling in Germany, and no change in Britain. If the economy managed to satisfy the needs of the armed forces, this entailed the diversion of valuable resources away from consumption and investment. By 1916, with industry concentrating on producing for the army and navy, 
the gross value of consumer goods production was 15% lower than in 1913, and by late 1916, there were alarming shortages of consumer goods across the country, with grain in short supply in the major cities. Prices soared, and by February 1917, the purchasing power of the ruble had declined to about 30% of its pre-war level. Footnote 110. Not least of the causes of shortages was a serious crisis in transportation, which would become disastrous in the course of 1917 with the railways having neither the network nor the rolling stock to bring much-needed supplies to the civilian population. The railway system had been designed in part to move grain from Russia's southern steppe and southern Ukraine to the Black Sea for export, whereas grain now had to be moved north and east to the main fronts. It is astonishing that grain supply should have proved to be the Achilles heel of the Russian economy, given that in 1913 exports from Russia constituted 30% of the world's grain trade. The blockade of the Black Sea and Baltic ports by the Central Powers put an end to exports, and this ought to have meant that there was plenty of grain to feed the civilian population as well as the army. Harvests were no worse than usual, indeed that of 1915 was good and that of 1916 average. Footnote 111. The government's priority was to feed the armed forces, but the different authorities had little confidence in the capacity of the free market to feed the armed forces and civilian population. This gave rise to conflicts between Stavka, the ministries, and the Zemstvos over procurement and pricing. In August 1915, the newly founded Special Council for Food Supply introduced fixed prices for military procurements, stating that this was the best way to protect the consumer from extortionate prices. Army procurement distorted the market, increasing demand, creating artificial shortages, and fueling price raises. An embargo on the movement of grain out of provinces close to the front heightened the power of local governments in those areas, and, together with local rationing, further fragmented what was intended to be a centralized system of procurement and supply. As early as February 1915, the government permitted the requisition of goods, quote, in cases where these are in short supply on the market, end quote. A phenomenon it blamed on merchants withholding stocks in the expectation of higher prices. Yet, the special commissioners empowered to buy grain having initially purchased direct from the producers, by July 1916 came to rely on these same middlemen, from whom they purchased 50% of the army's grain requirement, compared with 18% from landowners, 15% from peasants, and 17% from cooperatives. Footnote 112. The parallel existence of grain bought at fixed prices and grain bought on the open market was in fact an incitement to hoarding, and in September 1916, fixed prices for grain and flour were introduced for the population as a whole. By December 1916, a fully-fledged system of grain requisitioning had emerged, one that adumbrated the food monopoly instituted by the Bolsheviks in late 1918, with provinces assigned quotas of grain that they were expected to fulfill. 
In practice, the system was debilitated by the dismal state of transport and by the unwillingness of local Zemstvos to cooperate. Following the February Revolution, the provisional government took the next logical step and declared a state monopoly on grain. The impact of the war on agricultural production varied by region. The conscription of men and the removal of draft horses adversely affected regions where commercial production of grain was intensive, such as southern Ukraine, the lower Volga, and the North Caucasus. Inevitably, big commercial estates were more adversely affected by the labor shortage than peasant holdings. Footnote 113. Areas where subsistence agriculture was the norm, such as the central Black Earth region and northern parts of Ukraine, maintained normal levels of production mainly by substituting the labor of women and youth for that of adult males. In any case, these were overpopulated areas where labor had been underutilized. In Western Siberia, by contrast, in spite of the constrained supply of labor and equipment, Yeoman farmers actually increased the area under cultivation along with yield from crops and livestock, as well as increasing handicraft production. Footnote 114. After the first year of war, procurement of agricultural produce was concentrated on Siberia, which put a further strain on transportation. The crucial problem was that the fixed prices on grain left peasants with little incentive to market their produce so they chose to eat better, feed more grain to livestock, or distill it into alcohol. Moreover, they were increasingly unable to use the money they made from grain sales to buy manufactured goods, such as textiles, kerosene, matches, salt, meat, or sugar. Peasants made substantial deposits in savings banks, although the fear that inflation would eat away their value soon set in. By winter 1916, Food shortages had become acute, and contemporaries were quick to blame the government. Doubtless, it could have done better, but the problems were fundamentally structural, and neither the provisional government nor the Bolsheviks would prove any more effective in dealing with them. If one ignores vital regional differences, the standard of living of the rural population increased in comparison with its pre-war level incomes on average rising 18%. Yet even in a very wealthy region such as the Altai, the war saw the proportion of households without sown land increase from 3.2% to 10.6%, and in Western Siberia as a whole, some 5-6% of households had no livestock by 1917. Footnote 115. In other words, inequalities within the rural population were increasing even where the average standard of living rose. In Kharkiv province, by contrast, the average standard of living appears to have deteriorated, to judge from landholding and handicraft income. There, the number of households not farming any land rose from 14% to 22%, and the number of households farming 4.4 hectares three desiatina, or less, rose by more than 50%. Footnote 116. In Kharkiv, as in many other areas, it was women, now in charge of the family farm, who were in the forefront of protest. 
They clashed with the authorities over requisitioning of livestock and fodder for the army, over taxes, over land surveying, efforts to continue the Stolypin reforms were still going on, and, not least, on the rising cost of living. Footnote 117. Wives and widows of soldiers were particularly militant. They qualified for allowances from the government, but these did not keep pace with inflation. In 1916, around 300 rural disturbances took place, nearly a third of which were put down by troops. This was nothing like the level of militancy of 1905, but it marked a break with the quiescence of the countryside that had set in during the years of reaction. Footnote 118. In all, about 20% of the industrial workforce was conscripted into the army. Footnote 119. Initially, skilled workers were conscripted indiscriminately into the army, and the revolutionary activists who had been involved in the disorders in the capital in July 1914 were deliberately targeted. However, a shortage of skilled labor soon arose in the defense sector, with the result that wages were pushed up. Soon, some of the skilled workers who had been enlisted were sent back to work in the armaments factories under military discipline. Mass production of armaments led to a rise in the proportion of unskilled female and peasant workers, the percentage of workers with ties to the land increasing to 60% of the total labor force. Footnote 120. Women not only entered factory jobs on a significantly greater scale than before the war, but also entered male preserves in the job market for the first time, as they did in all belligerent countries. On the railways, for example, women took up jobs as conductors, stokers, and cleaners, and the increased visibility of women in such jobs sparked public debate about conventional gender roles and stirred fears of female sexuality. If wages tended to rise in real terms initially, by 1916, rapid price inflation was eating away at their value. In the capital, which had been renamed Petrograd so that it sounded less German, there was a high proportion of skilled engineering and metal workers, and by this time their average wages had fallen in real terms to 70-75% to of their pre-war level. In Moscow, where women textile workers predominated, real wages fell to about 60-65% to of their pre-war level by February 1917. And in the Earls, the third major centre of war production, average real wages fell by about a half. Footnote 121. By winter 1916, all the towns, the industrial regions, and the consumer provinces were reeling from a severe grain shortage. Although this had structural causes, it was commonly blamed on the profiteering that was encouraged by government requisitioning. Even the cadets, who were the most sympathetic of the political parties to the free market, declared on the 3rd of March 1917, quote, Let every trader open his warehouses, confident that there will be no more of the venality and extortion that has left some unpunished and others burdened with intolerable taxes. Footnote 122. One of the more ugly features of popular protest was a tax on shopkeepers, traders, and suspected hoarders, often coloured by anti-Semitism, which could sometimes end in killings. 
As early as the 12th of April 1915, the Ministry of Internal Affairs warned provincial governors that disorders among the poorest layers of the population were taking place because the supply situation was critical in certain areas. Footnote 123. In 1915, 23 food or marketplace disorders occurred in a couple of dozen towns and industrial settlements, but this grows to 288 in 1916. In police reports, soldiers' wives and youths were singled out as being the forefront of these protests. Footnote 124. The women insisted that pensions, fair prices, and measures to put an end to speculation were entitlements due to them as the wives of men fighting for the fatherland. Footnote 125. And all the riots were driven by outrage that the burdens of war were not being borne fairly. Increasingly, some took on an anti-war tone. Quote, they are slaughtering our husbands and our sons in the war, and at home they want us to starve to death. End quote. Footnote 126. The outbreak of war had seen labor militancy collapse. However, in the course of 1915, and above all in 1916, Russia saw a level of strike activity that was unprecedented in any other belligerent power, much of it having a strong political complexion. In 1915, there were 1,928 strikes. In 1916, 2,417 involving 1,558,400 workers. And in January to February of 1917, there were 718 strikes involving 548,300 workers. Footnote 127. Still, this did not remotely match the level of 1905, in particular, railway workers showed none of the militancy they had done in that year. Strikes, moreover, were concentrated in Petrograd and Moscow, whereas the Baltic, Belarusia, and the Caucasus were less militant than they had been a decade earlier. And Poland, of course, was under German occupation. Stoppages tended to be rarer in state-owned defense enterprises than in private enterprises, although this was not the case in Petrograd. Very worryingly for the authorities was that the number of political strikes began to increase in 1916, especially following the prorogation of the Duma in August 1915. Around a quarter of workers who went on strike in 1916 did so for political reasons. Footnote 128. The proportion was particularly high in the capital, where the Okhrana deplored the sharply negative attitude towards the government and the further continuance of the war. Footnote 129. At the Pudilov Armaments Works in the capital, the workforce had grown to 29,300 by 1917. In a strike in February 1916, the workforce was locked out, and 100 were arrested and 2,000 conscripted. The same occurred after a strike in November, when 5,000 soldiers from the Tarotinsky Regiment were drafted in. Footnote 130. For the urban population more generally, 
The steep decline in supplies of fuel and food caused great anger, and this was a driver behind the political stakes and demonstrations that occurred after the Duma was again prorogued on the 16th of December, and again on the 9th of January 1917, the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. The workers' group of the War Industries Committee played a central role in these strikes, although anti-war militants were increasingly important in mobilizing workers on the ground. Footnote 131. The war had split all the socialist parties into opponents of the war, known as internationalists and reluctant supporters of the war, known as defensists. The Bolsheviks were less seriously damaged by this split than were the SRs and Mensheviks. Though on the ground, few Bolsheviks adhered to Lenin's call to turn the imperialist war into a civil war. The second half of 1914 saw the Bolsheviks decimated by arrests and by conscription. From 1916, their fortunes revived, but on the eve of the February Revolution, there were probably no more than 12,000 Bolsheviks in the country at large. Footnote 132. In the course of 1915 to 1916, other internationalist groupings, including SRs, the interdistrict group in the capital, the Menshevik internationalists, also revived and were increasingly influential in agitating against the war. Footnote 133. The steep rise in labor militancy suggests that the mood of millions of workers was revolutionary. But as the internationalists conceded, the mood was more accurately described as revolutionary defensist. Revolutionary in that large swaths of workers were vehemently hostile to the autocracy and to those who were profiting from the war. Yet, defensist in that there was no desire to see the Russian army go under at the hands of Germany, even as there was a desperation to see an end to the war. This was broadly the position articulated by the Workers' Group of the War Industries Committee, which comprised mainly defensist Mensheviks. The latter were broadly supportive of the war, but when Gushkov asked the Workers' Group to endeavor to preserve social peace, they retorted, quote, It is difficult to talk of preserving something that does not exist and never has. End quote. Footnote 134. It was the Workers' Group along with the medical funds and trade unions it sustained, that would provide the main element of leadership as the country slid into revolution. On the 1st of November 1916, the Duma heard Pavel Milyukov, the leader of the cadets, deliver a sensational attack on the government in which he denounced dark forces and, listing a series of government failures, asked, is this stupidity or treason? The shameless intervention of Rasputin in politics had become the lightning rod for the frustration of the political elite with the incompetence of the government. On the night of 16th to 17th December, Prince Felix Yusupov, scion of one of Russia's most ancient families, hatched a plot with Grand Duke Dmitri and with Vladimir Purishkevich, one of the initiators of the Black Hundreds, to assassinate Rasputin. Later, he wrote a florid account of their bid to dispose of Rasputin in an attempt to save the old order. Quote, the poison continued to have no effect and the starets, holy man, went on walking calmly about the room. 
I aimed at his heart and pulled the trigger. Rasputin gave a wild scream and crumpled on the bearskin. There was no possibility of doubt. Rasputin was dead. Dmitri and Purishkovich lifted him from the bearskin and laid him on the flagstones. We turned off the light and went up to my room, after locking the basement door. We talked of the future of our country, now that it was freed once and for all from its evil genius. As we talked, I was suddenly filled with a vague misgiving. An irresistible impulse forced me to go down to the basement. Rasputin lay exactly where we had left him. I felt his pulse. Not a beat. He was dead. All of a sudden, I saw his left eye open. A few seconds later, his right eyelid began to quiver, then opened. I saw the green eyes of a viper staring at me with an expression of diabolical hatred. Then a terrible thing happened. With a sudden violent effort, Rasputin leapt to his feet, foaming at the mouth. He rushed at me, trying to get at my throat, and sank his fingers into my shoulder like steel claws. End quote. Footnote 135. The murder of Rasputin by members of his court circle seems to have done little to ruffle the Tsar's equanimity. Asked in January 1917 by the British ambassador Sir George Buchanan how he proposed to regain his subject's confidence, Nicola retorted, quote, Do you mean that I am to regain the confidence of my people, or that they are to regain mine? End quote. And with that incredibly hubristic quote, that's going to finish that chapter and finish us for this week. Next time we'll be continuing as things I expect will escalate. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.